Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with my friend and colleague, Carla Goldstein. Carla is the president of Omega Institute, the nation's premier holistic learning center, offering innovative educational experiences that provide an integrated approach to personal and social change. She's on the forefront of women's leadership as co-founder of the Omega Women's Leadership Center. Carla has 25 years of experience in public interest advocacy, contributing to city, state, and federal laws related to women's rights, poverty, public health, and social justice. She serves as an advisor to Women Without Borders, Feminist.com, Citizen Well at Citizen With No Vowels, and Living Room Conversations, and presents to all kinds of audiences on applying holistic principles in our everyday lives, communities, and global society. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Carla. Thank you. What a pleasure. I know, it's such a delight, even if we can't <laughs> see each other, like, we can talk to each other. Um, yeah. Maybe uh, if someone listening is not familiar with the Omega Institute, you would want to start with describing it somewhat? Sure. Uh, it's a 41-year-old nonprofit organization uh, in the Hudson Valley in New York. And if you think of it uh, a little bit like camp for grown-ups, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, when you're a grown-up and you go to camp, you're 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 looking for both the same things kids are, and something a little bit different. Um, we offer over 350 different workshops. People usually come to us for a weekend uh, or for a week. Sometimes we have month-long trainings, but mostly people are just you know, coming in for a, a dip in. And the way we think about it is that uh, we, we help people um, seed new possibilities you know, for themselves, for our communities, our families and our world. And that can look really different for every person. Um, What is it that, you know, each person is trying to cultivate and grow in themselves and what are the conditions they need? What do we need in our communities and how do we contribute to that? And so we like to to help people feel like they're part of a community because there's so much isolation. So when people come to Omega, we sort of operate like a little village. Um, You know, we serve food from the farms nearby, and we have a cafe, and we have a library, and a sanctuary, and a a lake. So there's a a sense of a built-in community. And then we also, you know, are a connected community globally because technology lets us be that. And we see in person on the Rhinebeck campus about 23,000 people in a six-month season. Uh, But we are a community of about 2 million people online. And that's that's growing. So we hope to give people uh, a sense of connectedness and inspiration, help them find you know more meaning and um, learn something new. And people come to Omega for all different kinds of reasons. Some people just come to chill out and relax in this twenty four seven technology driven 
culture. And some people, lots of people come because they're, they're looking for something. They need something. They come to the end of some road, whether it's uh, they want to change their job or they're, uh, they have a health crisis or somebody in their life has a health crisis or they just are feeling bereft and overwhelmed and need some inspiration. Um, so lots of people come for reasons big and small, and we have this very wide range of programs uh, for folks who come. And it's a wonderful place to work and to visit. Like I visited it before I worked here and I've been here now for 15 years. Oh my gosh. It's been 15 yeah. years. Yeah. Wow. That's a <laughs> long hard time. To believe. <laughs> yeah. Never thought that that would be the, the longevity path for me, but uh, I have grown so much myself in the way that we hope people who come to us can grow. So it's, it's kind of an amazing place to work. And how long ago uh, did you become the president? That was in the spring. So, And what does that mean that you're the president? <laughs> well, it's kind of exciting because it's a shared leadership model. We're, we're experimenting at Omega with the kinds of things that we teach about connectedness and collaboration. So we have a CEO, Skip Backus, who's been our CEO for a very long time and been leading the organization one way or the other for most of its years. Um, and we've created this position to really help focus externally, which prior to this, I was the chief external affairs office uh, officer. And that means like, how do we relate and extend ourselves to communities uh, beyond Omega and really focusing on partnerships, collaborations, fund development? How do we build a robust membership community around the world so that we are really, really growing a community that wants to see new possibilities for the planet and for humanity. Um, and along with that comes uh, responsibility for building the resources to do it. So we've launched pretty significant uh, capital campaign that I'm responsible for. And um, yeah, those are the, the, the reason for the role was Omega's growth and aspirations to expand our impact in the world. In your own life, would you say that activism and spirituality came up together or did one precede the other? Mm, one definitely preceded the other. Uh, I was sort of born of activist parents uh, who were in the civil rights movement. My mom was an early feminist uh, in the women's rights movements. My parents split when I was pretty young, but I was raised on the idea and watching my parents take action to uh, bring healing to people who were suffering and to make changes in the world around them. And when I was old enough to begin my own you know, path, my own career path, I was really drawn into public policy. Um, and I worked in the New York State Legislature. I worked at the New York City Council. Uh, and I, I loved the idea and the way that people from all walks of life were coming together to decide how, what's the policy? How are we going to live together? You know, what's the tax policy? What's the health policy? What's the, what kind of highways do we want to have? What's the school policy? So that was really invigorating to me as a young person. 
Um, but as I got older and really came to understand um, the adversarial process, I'm a lawyer. I got trained as a lawyer. I went on to work for Planned Parenthood. Um, I Two things happened together, uh, I would say, that led me deeply into a kind of spiritual practice. One was that I just had this knowing that there was something wrong with the polarization. You know, there's just something inherently wrong with it. Um, that screaming at each other was not going to get us where we wanted to go. And then the other was, of course, which so often happens deeply personal, which was that I had a health crisis. And so those two things probably not coincidentally happened at the same time. And I began turning to meditation and to yoga and to tarot cards, you know, to, to practices that helped me get that observer bird's eye view on myself and on my world. And the more I practiced, the more I realized that what I didn't want to do was be creating the conditions that I was trying to change, right? So like the activists kind of like fight, scream, yell, belittle, you know, beat to a pulp sort of posture. Mm -hmm. My opinion is better and more right than your opinion, period, end of discussion. Um, that just no longer felt productive to me. And I began, I didn't know exactly what a new path would look like, but I would say for the last 15 years, that's really been my own inquiry. What does it look like? And I've learned so much from you, Sharon, uh, we had that kind of funny story. I don't know if we want to tell it about sure. talking into each other. <laughs> I had just been at Omega for a couple of years, and there was this big conference called Netroots Nation, which is in, it was in the early days. I think it was their very first conference of bringing activists. It was the beginning of the blogosphere. Nobody even knew what a blogger really was. Everybody had code names. And they said, hey, let's get all these bloggers together and created this convention, huge convention center. And I went because my husband was involved and we, I was just walking around looking at the two to 3000 people who showed up and I bumped right into you. Yeah. We barely knew each other, but you were like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what are you doing here? We kind of came out to each other as being both interested in, you know, spirit and action. And right. what did that mean? <laughs> and what did that look like? And that was really funny. That was quite a moment. I think I came down an escalator or something. I was like, whoa, look who's here. Carla from Omega. Yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know how old some of your listeners are, but <laughs> that moment when uh, peanut butter bumped into chocolate and created the Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> oh, God, I never thought of that. <laughs> it's like, how do we put these two things together? What does that look like? I mean, people have been trying to do that. The church, you know, it's a question that has been long asked, you know as long as people have been pondering these things, you know, pondering sort of the yearnings of the heart and um, how we work together as a society, most cultures ask this question. And we've been asking it in contemporary time and contemporary way. How, how can we um, take the insights of the era of psychology and um, practices long long-term practices of meditation that lived in the East that you've helped bring to the West, how do we take some of this beautiful, important wisdom of how to transform ourselves and 
bring bring along that into our quest to make the world a place that works for everybody where, you know, we really lay down our weapons of war and we really figure out um, how to be in a different way in this human this human experiment, endeavor, beauty. Um, yeah. Well, it seems to me like when I, I mean, I often say like when I look back at the civil rights movement, it seemed to me to be a particularly spiritual movement. Um, you know, some people certainly between the black church or synagogues or things that led people through their religious faith to, to those protests. And, and, uh, but even, you know, watching films of, say, the Freedom Riders going to register people to vote and stooping down and praying, you know, before they would go forward and, you know, maybe be jailed, maybe be beaten up, maybe be killed even, um, that there was some kind of fusion that seemed so natural. Yeah, I I, I agree. And I think there's something about our social change process in the United States, where I have, you know, the experience to say, our legislative process, where everything is organized by committee, mm-hmm. by topic, and then we have these, you know, political parties. There's something inherent in the structure that keeps things very compartmentalized and that. Uh, it's that compartmentalization and that polarization. It just it, it it inhibits, I think, the conditions that are required for taking that holistic view. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know what what we know, what we've always known, but kind of forgot and are coming back around to it, is that everything is interconnected and interdependent, and it's hard to untangle the knot of problems that we have without looking at the whole picture, but the way that we go about it is hyper-specialization. You know, people who really, really, really understand water quality, people who really, really understand tax policy. And so there's just so much fracture, and then you lay a political process on top of it that um, has an adversarial system. You know, that's, that's how it runs, is through this adversary system and, and, and you end up with, it's really hard to make the kind of changes that we need. Somehow it, it seems hard to, and maybe very important to keep a vision of the whole, but be able to dedicate your time and energy and resources to one thing, you know, or two things. Cause it's awfully exhausting. And I find, I find it, it myself yeah. and certainly in the people I talk to as well, you know, who are, meditation students it's like it's too much you know right. i can't worry right. about that too <laughs> yeah yeah i think we really suffer from it's too muchness in every way mm-hmm. um and technology just even increases the it's too muchness like that you can know real time exactly the horrors and the suffering that's happening and even watch it you know it's mm-hmm. like how 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 to make sense of it and when we you know talk to people people ask us this all the time how what should i do how do I take action that's meaningful? And the way that, you know, I like to think of it for myself and help others think of it, others think about it is that there there's sort of three ways you could splice and dice it is, you know, well, what does your heart call to most? Mm-hmm. You know, because for most people and 
we're going to do a meditation at the end that tries to help call that out. Um, for most people, there's something in them that's really the thing that mm -hmm. makes them most motivated and really want to contribute. So one way is what, what does your heart call you to? The other is, you know, where can you help the most? So you might be called to one thing, but really based on your skill set, your proximity, your resources, you could really help by leveraging mm -hmm. yourself in a particular way. And then, you know, the third thing is where can you do it and get the most support? Sometimes taking action with other people is really mobilizing. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you're like, you don't feel as helpless when you're doing it in good company. Um, and, you know, last thing that I think it's sort of like when you're laying in bed in the morning and you just don't want to get up and you're tired and then you get up <laughs> and then you're like, oh, it's okay. It's good to get up. It's good to walk outside mm -hmm. and the sun mm -hmm. is there and the air and the nature is, you know, humming along and you, you reconnect, you feel reconnected mm -hmm. that in some way, I think taking action, any action, smallest action possible is that same thing of like getting up and getting reconnected. Like you're connecting to the larger system outside yourself. And uh, that can feel really inspiring. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, the way it's like, um, you know, if you, if I try to think of how meditation practice or awareness can help activism, how it can help inform activism, Part of it is simple awareness. It's like, oh, you know, I didn't realize I was so afraid of this. And what's it like to kind of acknowledge the fear but go forward anyway? And right. I didn't realize how hard it was till I really paid attention to feel so alone in this endeavor. Right. You know, can I find a community that would support my efforts? It seems that without that, ever-growing awareness that's it's a whole other kind of activity yeah completely and you know i think the more awareness we have the more out of isolation we come the more community we build the more impactful our collective impact can mm -hmm. be um, because not any one of us it's hard to do anything by <laughs> by oneself so i think that's really a, a good formula the way that you connected the dots between practice and action. And I also think activism is such a, it comes in many forms, you know, it's really not only like protest or marching. Or, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 absolutely. I mean, how would you, you know, how do you think about it? Well, I, I think about it in, in several ways. One is that what I was thinking of, uh, in particular, was this time I was getting prepared to teach this course in D.C. over, I think, four weeks. And I wanted people, as part of signing up, to volunteer somewhere. And then we were going to use the times we got together to really practice mindfulness and look at the various issues that were coming up in in people's minds. And I was really embarrassed because as people were signing up, they were or wanting to sign up, they'd, they'd call, uh, in this case it was the National Cathedral, and they would say, well, I'd really like to sign up for this course, but I'm taking care of my elderly mother. I can't really volunteer any, another place. Or, you know, I have a child who, who gets ill. I can't really, you know, and, and as people just describe their ordinary day-to-day -day lives, I thought, they are serving, you know. 
Right. Like, why right. did I think it had to be like a special activity? And when I think of activism, I, I kind of think of that, you know, in so many ways in which we work to make a difference or we do some activity to try to make a difference. And I'd also say, because this comes up a lot in the in the book that I've just written, not not yet out, um, which is really um, art is a form of activism in my mind, and creativity is a form of activism in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think art can be some of the most powerful uh, form of activism because it takes us beyond words and into symbols and um, songs, uh, images, things that really can move the heart. Um, and change your perspective on something. Somebody was telling me they just saw an art exhibit on the silence of art, how art, art mm-hmm. is, you know, when it's uh, visual art, it's quiet, and yet it's so loud, <laughs> or it can be mm-hmm. so loud in its in its silence. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. And, you know, one of the ways that we think about it, and Sharon, you and I have uh, taught at Omega on this framework, which is, looking at things from a personal, relational, and global perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, so what is it that's going on for an individual at any time and what kind of self-care might they need or um, how to heal the self so that what you're bringing out into the world is not reflecting and projecting the wound- woundedness that any one of us has. Mm-hmm. And then you know, when you're working. So that that's a form of activism, like healing yourself, because that is going to improve what you can bring in um, to others. And then relational, like what are our relationships? What is the context in which we are in relationship with each other? And how do we, how do we be really mindful of that? So when we are coming towards somebody, we're not doing it in a way that is diminishing their humanity. And what does that mean? How, how do we hold those relationships in, in a steady way? And that's a form of activism, not powering over somebody else or, you know, really coming to somebody with compassion, supporting somebody's dream or hope. Um, and then looking at global, and when we say global, we mean systems issues because not everything mm-hmm. needs to be international. Like that's kind of how we think about when you hear the word global, but really we live in this interconnected world and every day the systems uh, that, that impact all of us are so interconnected around the world. Our time clocks, uh, our technology, our means of production, the computer that we have, the phone, you and I, you know, we're talking on a phone and we're creating a a podcast and it's going to be projected over (laughs) these, Mm -hmm. these wires. So these are all systems issues and our systems, um, structural issues can really keep us all locked in a certain place. So how do, we, how do we evolve our systems and structures? What do we do with structural racism? What do we do with uh, our consumer structures that are devastating our natural resources and polluting the very source of life for humans and all animals you know, these are systems issues that need to be addressed and changed. And so there's a, and there's an interplay between all of these three, three levels of our, our being, our personal self, our relationships and systems and structures. And so how can we develop practices and insight and awareness of each of those levels and their interplay? 
what do you think about the role of joy and happiness in action and activism? Hmm. Well, I think it has a huge role because I think I think all human beings deep down seek the same thing, you know, connectedness, safety, joy. I mean, the meta practice. I've learned so much from you mm. about meta practice and what we can wish for ourselves and then out into the other communities, into the whole world. And so if if every person wants to have joy, then the world we want, we want a world where joy can be. Mm-hmm. So our activism, like what are the conditions that create joy? If our activism isn't both motivated and implemented with joy uh, baked in, then the conditions we're creating for the systems change it will be very difficult for that to be to be conditions of joy. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the in-breath and the out-breath, like our, our, our desires for ourselves and our desires for the world have this deep connection and joy, which I would say is probably one of the biggies of what we all want. Um, and, you know, we do a lot to, as we learn in the practice, aversion. We, want, uh, we don't want other things than joy. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of averting ourselves so that we can get to mm-hmm. joy. So if that's true, if, if, if every human being wants joy, then, then that's such a gateway. How can we each as individuals bring joy, be motivated by joy, bring joy into our relationships and be thinking about systems and structures, which are really that key to creating conditions, right? Our conditions, our living conditions with each other, how do we create the conditions for every person to have joy? And it's not like that sort of Pollyanna-ish, oh, we're just all going to be slap happy all the time. Um, but deep joy comes from so many things, you know, from connectedness, from feeling part of uh, family and community and doing something that feels meaningful and helpful and contributory. So I, I I think it has enormous relevance in our thinking about activism. So my other question was, going back to the personal, relational, and global, or uh, I like this definition of global as kind of systems change, um, and and going back to Omega's programming, um, like I'm I'm aware of many of the programs that are about personal understanding and insight and growth and and relational uh, as well. But um, I wonder if you could talk about some of the programs that are really about learning more about systems change and, and having that kind of wider impact and view of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been building um, a, two different centers One is called the Omega Center for Sustainable Living, which is um, really focused on climate change and looking at all the intersectional ways that we have created the conditions for climate change and what we need to do to, you know, draw carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and, And that work, 
you know, really is looking at the, the three different levels, the personal, the relational, and the global. So we're working as Omega at those different levels. We have, you know, workshops where people can learn about um, water purification and eco design and things like that. And then we're doing a lot of work with schools and educators, like how do we get curriculum on climate change into uh, the leadership at schools and into students' hands all over the country with a focus regionally. We're doing it regionally, but also uh, globally. And we have this um, work that we're doing with Drawdown Learn, Project Drawdown, which is all about the top 100 things we can do right Mm -hmm. now. We have the technology right now to draw carbon out of the atmosphere. So how do we, we are working with young leaders and institutions to distribute both the information, but to also create the context for working together. How do we work together in communities to make these kinds of changes that are needed? Um, And then also working at the global policy level, working at the UN, you know, in coalition with lots and lots of people who are trying to make this shift of uh, both an awareness of like, what does it mean to be living in a world that's getting hotter and where we are consuming more resource than we need or than is going to allow the, the, the balance that's required for, for life to be stable, for human beings to continue to live on the planet. Um, and then the other center that we've developed that you've been part of is the Omega Women's Leadership Center. And um, that is – anybody can take – of course, but we also have within the Omega Women's Leadership Center a growing curated program to work with leaders and nonprofits who are themselves working on systems issues. So people working on economic uh, equity, working on violence, gender-based violence, working on um, trying to move the dial around issues that impact uh, women and girls, particularly. And then, in addition to those two centers, I'll just mention you know, we have many programs doing it, but the other one that is of significance to us is our nonprofit uh, grant program, where we have seen over the 12, 13 years about 400 nonprofit organizations and close to 4,000 people in those nonprofit organizations giving them a grant to come to the campus and have the opportunity to both build network with each other and build their own stronger strategic planning, deeper relationships in their organization and with themselves, and to figure out how to bring in this personal practice in their work so that they can be more resilient and stronger and more connected. Um, And so those are some of, you know, those are some of the major Mm -hmm. ways that we're advancing this work. We do other work with veterans. And yeah, I just got that, work that with, uh, email, yeah. which is very timely. Yeah, yeah. And, and and also, I, I'd say the other thing that is you've been working on, um, and a lot of the people in the mindfulness community is bringing mindfulness into the schools. And so we have a huge program working with educators to bring mindfulness in the schools. So those are some of the ways that we're mm-hmm. working uh, at the systems and structure level. We're not like directly doing it, but we're supporting mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. who are. Yeah, well, it seems like a fantastic role for Omega to be taking because it's it's very significant. I mean, for a lot of people, I know that when you enter that world um, through the lens of personal self-improvement or, or self-care, 
um, there is a, a deepening and a development of qualities like kindness and generosity. But I think systems change is a whole other kind of education. You know, the mm-hmm. example that I use, which I think is a very true, um, is, you know, many, many times I've heard from students who've done more loving kindness meditation or mindfulness meditation that they were approached on the street by uh, a homeless person or street person asking for money. And and people have said to me, you know, it's always been my habit to give somebody a dollar, but this is the first time I've ever looked that person in the eye and realized, oh, that's a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's definite transformation that happens. And at the same time, I don't think it's an immediate occurrence for people to to think, what's the housing policy in this city, you know? Right. Like, why are there so many right. homeless people here? Um, right. You know, and, and that's its own kind of education. And there are not many... Um, spiritually infused places that are are doing that kind of education. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it does feel like, um, for us, we think about it as bringing people on two ends of the poles towards each other. You know, if you you are an activist and you're fueled by anger and rage, that could be very well placed, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Very well placed. If you live in a community that is deprived of resources and deprived of opportunity. Uh, I heard somebody, I wish I could remember his name, speaking at a conference the other day, Nation Swell is a wonderful organization and conference, and they were talking about, um, you know, structural racism, 400 years slavery and the metaphor they used uh, was if you're a person who's being kicked in the shins, you know, for 350, 60 years, and then suddenly the kicking stops, <laughs> but but there's still, you know, all this pain, like an inhibition and a lack of opportunity. And people are like, well, what are you so upset about? Like, why, why aren't we past mm-hmm. that? And meanwhile, there's so many systems and structures in place that have uh, deprived um, people with a legacy of, you know, the sin of our country of of being descendants of slaves. That uh, we we have to have an awareness of what that means and take action. And the question, I think, one of the really big questions for these historic wounds is, what does repair look like? Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of like your own life and when you've done something wrong to somebody and you want to make up for it, you know what that looks like and what that feels like. And I think we're, we're a little bit overcome with like, well, well, what would it look like? How do we repair this? And uh, I think those conversations are really starting to happen now with indigenous, you know, leaders saying, you know, took all the land and (laughs) decimated our people. But what can repair look like? And what should it look like? And what do those of us who feel we weren't there when the original sin happened or the original harm happened, why, why should we have to do something as white people? I'm speaking myself as a white person. Um, there's a new consciousness and a new awareness that we have to bring in um, so that we can move towards repair. Because otherwise you're just, you know, it, we, can't, we can't advance at a deeper level. 
Well, you've spent a lot of your professional life, maybe most of it, supporting women's empowerment in various forms. I've learned a lot from you, actually, and I'm trying to remember some of the time scale that you presented uh, mm-hmm. at, at mm-hmm. some of those conferences. Um, maybe you could repeat some of that. <laughs> sure. I'd like, I'd like to give... Um, reference points because we can, because our lifespans, we have like a short shelf life. The human shelf life is short, you know, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. Sometimes now we're up to a hundred. And when you put that shelf life up against the human story, it's like a flash. So, you know, scientists estimate that the, the world, the earth has, has been around like 4.5 billion years, give or take. And it's taken a very long time for organisms to evolve. And many organ. there's a wonderful uh, person whose work has informed me so much, Janine Benyus, who's the mother of biomimicry, like really looking at nature and learning from nature as a mentor. And she says that the organisms that survive and thrive on planet Earth are the ones that create conditions conducive to life. This is a key concept, creates conditions conducive to life. And you can look at the organisms, you know, organisms expire and, and, and don't come back all, all the time. And the ones that have been here for a long time, millions of years, billions of years, they are the ones that create these conditions conducive to life. And she has mapped so much of this and says, what are the conditions conducive to life? They are being networked, being diverse, being generous, uh, generous, and being cooperative. These are the key, key conditions for life. So in the course of human history, modern human beings in our current form have been around about 200,000 years, which from an earth point of view is relatively short. And for the most of the 200,000 years, um, up until, you know, uh, a very short time, time period ago, human beings lived in hunter-gatherer societies. We carried our food, you know, we, we, we roamed for our food. We weren't planted in one place for very long. And so if you're moving around, what's the thing you can't do? You can't carry stuff with you. <laughs> you know, you could carry children mm-hmm. and a couple of tools, but you really can't carry your house or your car or your condominium or whatever it is, your microwave oven, you know, you can't carry things. And so sort of the, the insight of, you know, the question, where did this come from, this gender imbalance? Where did patriarchy come from? That's the question that this timescale addresses. And as best as I have come to understand it, you know, we had this major human shift from hunter-gatherer to agriculture. And that was, they started about 10,000 years ago, give or take, and it took thousands of years for agriculture to become the main way that most human beings on the planet eat and live. And the huge change that happened as a result of that was that we planted ourselves near rivers and streams. And as a result of that, we got human density, people living in, you know, villages. And when you have that, then um, you you have you have to have rules of how you're going to get along, and the big concept that changed was that 
if you're going to plant things, you have to control land. So the concept of control, that like a human being would control the land and then you need people to work the land. So you're going to control the workers. Like this concept of our human relationships will be based on some people controlling other people, some people controlling the land and the means of production. This was a huge, huge shift in human relationships and how, how we were how are we building our human community? And patriarchy spread, took about 5,000 years to spread all over the world. And in just about every corner, not every single corner, and there are still indigenous cultures that have held on to more egalitarian ways, but patriarchy has affected everything. And, and often people think of it as um, male versus female. And the definition of patriarchy is, is very focused on gender. It's, you know, the control by men of all of the major institutions in society, including children and, uh, and women. And that, that precept, that idea of control, right around the time that villages were being formed, societies were being formed, it got written into the books as the laws and the way, mm -hmm. you know, it got written into the storyline. This is how we will govern ourselves with this set of people being in charge of this set of people. These people will have no rights and these people will have all the rights. And that creates a very fundamental, there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza mm -hmm. problem. Because when you don't contribute to the storyline, the meaning making of humanity, and you can't, and women couldn't, and you couldn't say, wait a minute, I don't buy this idea that we are less than. Um, the narrative that one set of people will control the others has followed us along for these, you know, few thousand years. And the punchline is that it's a storyline that's, that's not based in truth. Um, you know, that, that it's a storyline that is, is, contributing to so many of the problems we are talking about, to climate change, to continued war. Like we, we have to realize that the, we are nature and therefore these rules of nature that we are networked to survive, we need to be cooperative, generous, and diverse. Mm -hmm. These are the conditions that, that create organisms that survive and thrive, like that the human, human beings have been here for such a short time and we took a wrong turn and we can, we can correct that turn. I mean, that's the, the fundamental piece is that through practice, through awareness, through understanding that we have the capacity to bring in a new narrative and a new understanding of ourselves as interconnected beings that can figure out how to, how to be on the planet in this way, that to me is the exciting part of where we are historically. Like there's an emergence, I think, even though there are so many emergencies, <laughs> there is the emergencies are bringing with them an emergence of awareness and possibility that, you know, the way out of any one of these problems is kind of the way out of all mm -hmm. of them. And, and that is through, you know, the things that practice bring us to increased awareness of our interdependence and interconnectedness, increased practice of compassion and, and trying to understand what another human being is facing and feeling 
that you want to be of help and of service to that. So I'm sorry you asked, you know, you asked me a big question. No, I'm so <laughs> glad because, I mean, I could have asked and, and now I don't feel I need to. It's like, are you an optimist? <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? It's so exhausting, many people would say right yeah. now, but it feel, I can feel your inspiration. It's wonderful. Yeah, I, I thank you. I am an optimist. Some people would call me naive, but, um, and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's okay too. I, I'm happy to be naive and optimistic. I believe in human beings. I believe in our hearts. I believe in, um, in a deep knowing that we all have, uh, that, that we're meant to do it differently and that we did do it differently and that we can again in new ways. And I think that while the technology is overwhelming and overcoming and too much and there's corruption and all these crazy things, it also gives us a window, a portal on all of humanity that we've never had. And that helps us see our commonness, our shared experiences. That's fantastic. I feel silenced. <laughs> I mean, I, I, not in a bad way. I feel like, wow, I don't know if I have anything to add. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> well, I I have uh, really practiced to thank for, for my optimism, for turning mm-hmm. my own anxieties. And, uh, you know, I, I know you always ask how people came to practice. Mm-hmm. And I would say I came to practice to manage my own anxiety, mm-hmm. which was enormous. Mm-hmm. I suffered from panic and you know, I'm the multi-generation, uh, my grandparents were fled the mm-hmm, pogroms mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Poland and Russia and all that, you know, the anxiety they now know, uh, scientifically, you can mm-hmm. see that, um, panic and anxiety and trauma indicators pass genetically. Mm-hmm. And so do the things that create resilience, right? So everybody, everybody on the planet right now, while they may be suffering from trauma or inherited trauma. Also, if you think of the incredible resilience that we've all inherited because we're here, mm-hmm. somehow the person before us did something amazing, um, uh, something resilient, something, some many things resilient, and that's in mm-hmm. us. And so how do we harness that, that inheritance for uh, what this time needs? So great. So would you like to lead us in a practice? to close i i would be delighted to fabulous um okay well the practice that i want to do is based on my friend and teacher gail straub's work she wrote a wonderful book that really helped me along my path called the rhythm of compassion caring for self and connecting with society and i'm going to start by reading a quote from the book and then i'm going to give an instruction for the practice that's in three parts. This is the quote. She uses, I should say, she uses the in-breath and the out-breath as the the metaphor for how we take care of ourselves and how we take care of the world. And when I got that from her, it's just like, ah, yeah, I get it. Um, And this is what she says. Without the in-breath of self-care and reflection, We can't sustain our involvement with the suffering of the world, nor do we have the clarity of heart and mind required for the complex challenges we face. On the other hand, without the outbreath of compassionate engagement with society, our inner work implodes upon itself, 
leading to the dead end of narcissism and spiritual emptiness. To sustain life on all levels, we need to breathe in and we need to breathe out. So I have found that in-breath, out-breath, self-care, world care, rhythm of compassion really helpful. And so I'm going to spend a minute giving an instruction. Um, The meditation will come in three parts. The first part, we'll spend a minute just connecting to our in-breath and our out-breath, just to bring awareness to the breath. And then we're going to spend a minute bringing compassion to ourselves on the in-breath and bringing compassion to the world on the out-breath. And that's, that's sort of broad, that concept of compassion. So in the third step, we're going to be looking for insight, which is, uh, and I will prompt this, what do I need on the in-breath? What do I need for self-care on the in-breath? And what does the world need from me on the out-breath? What does the world need from me on the out-breath? And um, if minds wander, and this, Sharon, I learned from you, mm-hmm. so helpful. If minds wander, the things we're going to be practicing is first you're noticing. Noticing you're gone. That's the muscle number one, noticing. Two, compassion for the self. So we're practicing compassion because you're not going to kick yourself in the head for not for wandering because that's what the mind does. Three, we're going to come back for, to focus. So we're practicing focus. And four, we're going to begin again. Fresh start, fresh start, fresh start. So those are the things that we practice. If our mind wanders, we, we go into that. Notice compassion, focus, and begin again. And if, if any of the listeners want to, we're hoping for an insight. Maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. Piece of paper nearby to just jot that down. Uh, from number three, the inquiry of what do I need and what does the world need from me? Okay. Shall I begin? Good. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so wherever you are, uh, find your seat and find your breath for this rhythm of compassion practice. And we're going to practice connecting to self-care and to world care. And the way we're going to do it, we're going to begin for a minute on your own. I'll give you the initial prompt, but just find your in-breath and your out-breath. And when you, when you feel that breath, whether it's find a place that you know you can find it, whether it's uh, through the nose or feeling your belly going up and down, Every time you breathe in, to say the word in, and every time you breathe out, say the word out. And we'll do that for one minute.
And now continuing with your in-breath and your out-breath on the in-breath, bring a sense of compassion to yourself. And on the out-breath, bring your compassion out into the world. So on the in-breath, compassion to yourself. And on the out-breath, compassion to the world. And for our last minute of in-breath and out-breath, change your prompt to yourself to be, what do I need for self-care? What do I need? And the in-breath. And then on the out-breath, what does the world need from me? What does the world need from me? Again, on the in-breath, what do I need to take care of myself? And what does the world need from me? And that is the close. And um, if you had an insight of any kind and you want to jot it down about what you need for yourself or what you think the world needs from you, please write it down. You can put it into your phone. <laughs> you can put it on a piece of paper. Uh, but that is the end of the practice. Well, thank you so much, Carla. And thank you for coming to speak with me today. If you'd like to learn more about Carla's work, you can find her on Twitter at at Carla underscore Goldstein or look at Omega Institute's website at www.eomega it's E-O-M-E-G-A dot org and take a look at their new podcast which is called Dropping In which is on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts 
And as always, thank you for listening to the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. And may you have a wonderful day. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.